0: Friends, I'd like to start this evening by getting you to think about what are the things in life uh, that you reckon are worth fighting for? I don't necessarily mean physically fighting for, more along the lines of what are the sort of issues that you'd be prepared to, you know, make a stand on? What are the issues that you'd be prepared to make a fuss about, that you feel passionate over? The sort of things that you'd be prepared to get a little bit proactive about and stand up and be counted for. I don't know if you saw it in the news, but last week in Burke, there was a particular incident where the residents of the town got so fed up about crime within their town that they just took to the street in protest. Do you ever be prepared to do that? Is there anything at all that you'd be prepared to take to the streets over? Is law and order something that you'd be prepared to go to a little bit of trouble on? Yesterday, driving around Dubbo, I saw a car with a bumper stinker uh, protesting the new workplace agreement laws? Is politics something that you'd get passionate over? Is that something you'd be prepared to put a bit of effort into? What about the environment? Would you ever be prepared to lie down in front of a bulldozer to protect a forest or sail in front of a Japanese whaling boat? Is there anything that you'd be prepared to just be proactively passionate about? Well, in this little book of Jude, I think we're being told that if we're a follower of Jesus, there is in fact one thing that we ought to be prepared to get involved over. It's the issue of the Gospel. And verse 3, I think, pretty well spells it out for us. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Now, that little last phrase, contend for the faith, That's pretty much a sentence summary, a phrase summary of what this letter is all about. And let me just take the time to point out a couple of things about that phrase. Firstly, notice that it's the faith. It's not a faith. It's not even our faith. In other words, Jude has in mind a particular set of truths that we as Christians must believe and I want to press the point because I think it's worth getting straight in our mind because often we stress the idea that Christianity is primarily a relationship with Jesus rather than a set of ideas about Jesus. And that's a really good thing to stress. Uh, no one is saved in one sense by a set of ideas. The, the devil himself believes lots of the truths about Jesus. It's the relationship with Jesus that he lacks it's the, uh, it's, the, it's the living trust that he lacks. And so in one sense, it's good to stress the relationship aspect, but that's not to say that there is not also a set of truths about Jesus that are essential to Christianity. There are truths about Jesus and God and man and church and the world which are essential for the life of a Christian. And if we get those truths wrong what we end up with is a misplaced trust. We have a faith, but it's not the faith. Now Jude doesn't actually here specify what the truths are involved in this, the faith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives a nice little summary where he says, quote, of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. They're some of the sort of things that we really must believe. And if we don't get those sort of things straight, Jude is saying if we don't get those things right, we are not in the faith. It has to be preserved. Indeed, it has to be uh, 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 contended for, which is the second thing I'd like you to note, because it's a very, very proactive word that he's using here. It means to go on the front foot. It means to defend, it means to promote, it means to fight for, it means to strive for, it means to contest and grapple for. The word that he actually uses was used to describe contests amongst the gladiators. And so if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe wrestling and struggling to overcome and prevail and to be the victor, that's what Jude's got in mind here as he urges his readers to contend for the faith. He wants his readers to passionately struggle for it. He wants his readers to promote it. He wants his readers to to defend the faith and champion the cause of the faith. That correct set of truths about Jesus and God and us and life. And you see, having really sort of thrown down that challenge, the way the letter works is that he basically works through who should do this contending, why they should do it and how they should do it. That's pretty much the ebb and flow of the letter. Firstly, it's the who, and for this we need to backtrack to verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Just briefly in passing, uh, notice that Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. James is most likely there a reference to Jesus' physical brother. Uh, James, who along with Peter became one of the main leaders of the early church. If that's the case, Jude is also a brother of Jesus. But he doesn't call himself that. He calls himself a servant of Jesus. It's a measure of his reverence for Jesus Christ. The thing I'd really like you to note in verse 1 very simply is, who's he writing to? He's writing to those who have been called, loved and kept. Terrific words, which we're going to come back to at the end of the talk. But very simply... He's writing to Christians, isn't he? It's a very generalised audience that he's got in mind here. Hey, it's an audience like us. It's like evening church, people who have been called and loved and kept by God. All of which means that when, in verse 3, Jude says to contend and struggle and defend and fight for the faith, well, if you're a Christian, God's saying that to you this evening. This is not a word to the full-time gospel workers or the missionaries amongst us. Uh, the who of contending for the faith, is all of us. And why would that be? What is so cru- why is it so crucial that it should involve all of us? Well, he actually gives two, re- two reasons. The first one is to do with the preciousness of the faith. Verse 3 again, this time going right through to the very end. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Notice the way that verse, especially the end of it, really brings out how treasured and special the faith is. These are truths that have been entrusted to us, entrusted to the saints, entrusted to Christians. It's quite a technical word. It's the idea of having a family heirloom passed down to you. We're talking about a really valuable gift here that has been granted to you. Some translations put it as uh, delivered to the saints, but it's delivered in the sense of certified, hand-delivered, hand uh, special courier delivered. You need to sign for this type of delivery. This is something so special, so important, that you don't just trust it to the general post, especially because it's once-for-all entrusted. In other words, we're dealing here with a set of truths, we're dealing here with a gospel that never becomes obsolete. It will never be superseded. It will never be outdated. Man, that makes it very, very precious. I mean, I pay enough for computers and computer software, which gets superseded in in two days. How much more valuable is this? It will never stop being relevant. The faith is never obsolete. But if that wasn't reason enough, there's a second reason why we need to contend for it. Because it's not just precious, it actually also needs to be protected. Verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation were written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. At the time of Jude, uh, false teachers have obviously wormed their way even into the churches. He describes them as secretly slipping among you. It's sort of an image of a slithering snake just sort of sliding in next and amongst us all, spreading dangerous lies about the fact that we're saved by the grace of God. So it doesn't really matter if we sin, you're going to be forgiven. Telling dangerous lies that deny that Jesus is our sovereign and our Lord. Dangerous lies that say you can have him for your saviour but you don't have to obey him as your master. And it's at this point that Jude launches into a scathing attack on these false teachers. It goes all the way through to verse 16. And amongst other things in verses 8 to 10 he describes them as abusive, slanderous, unreasonable animals. In verse 12, he describes them as blemishes on their love feasts. Uh, The original is actually deliberately gross. They are pus-filled, festering acne that is polluting their food. They are described in the same verse as shepherds who sit down to stuff their face while the sheep that they're looking after are being ravished. They are clouds without rain. They are trees without fruit. They look promising. They deliver nothing. It is a savage picture. It gets worse as he describes what God's going to do to them. And he heaps up all these examples about how God has struck down and destroyed evil people in the past. In verse 5 he talks about how God judged the wicked people at the time of the Exodus. Verse 7 he reminds them of how God judged the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cain gets a mention, Balaam gets a mention. He even starts pulling in examples that aren't even in the Bible. That one in verse 6 about angels getting kicked out of heaven, that's not actually in the Bible. It comes out of another Jewish writing. The one in verse 9 about the archangel Michael arguing uh, with Satan over the body of Moses. That's a little weird. And it's another example, not in the Bible, it's out of Jewish tradition. Now the detail of some of those stories, is lost now, and so we've got to fill in the blanks a little bit about what he's getting at. But you don't need any guesswork to really see the point that he's pushing here. He's piling story upon story upon story which they would be familiar with so as to simply make the point that these teachers are evil, immoral people and come time they're going to face the full fury of the anger of God. Not politically correct. But again it is a measure of the value of the faith. Again it's the measure that that the gospel is precious. Delivered once for all to the saints, but it's in need of protection because false teachers abound, even inside churches. Which leads to the next big question. Well, how do we do that? How do we contend for the faith? Given that it's precious, given that it's in need of protection, how are we to go about doing it? Well, from verse 17 on, Jude offers three very practical how-tos. And look, I know alliterations are a bit kitsch nowadays, but the words remember, remain and rescue, they, will, they pretty well sum up these verses that he wants to make. If you're a person who's into to-do lists, lists to put on your fridge, here's the to-do list from the book of Jude. It's really the punchline of the letter. Firstly, remember, verse 17. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Jude's basically saying there: don't be surprised when false teachers appeared. Remember that it's only what the apostles of Jesus said would happen. And they've said it will continue to happen until he returns. That phrase in verse 18 about in the last days, that's a reference to the time period, the last days in the New Testament, is the time period between when Jesus first came and when he will return. We are in the last days now. Jude was in the last days when he wrote this letter. And he's saying, look, during this time, before Jesus comes back again, just don't be surprised. Don't let it sway you when someone with a title pops up, be it reverend or bishop or professor or pope, whatever. Don't be worried in one sense when they pop up and start denying the truths of the faith. Don't make it give you second thoughts. It's what the apostles predicted. Perhaps that old uh, motto of the scouts, be prepared, is pretty much what he's getting at here. Contend for the faith by being prepared for trouble. Expect false teachers to come along. Get ready for them. Because remember, it's exactly what the Apostle said it happened. But as well as remember, there's also remain. That is, remain in the faith yourself. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now I'd like you to notice the onus on us doing this for ourselves. He doesn't say be built up by others. He says build yourself up. He writes keep yourselves in God's love. There's a real onus on us putting in the hard yards for ourselves. In other words, if we're going to contend for the faith, we need to make sure that we don't desert it ourselves and we need to foster our own Christian life. We need to be taking time to read God's word and to talk with God in prayer, to be constantly reminding ourselves about God's love for us. We must not just come to church or a small group to be built up. As terrific as those things are, we need to take responsibility for ourselves Because if the only input we get is for an hour and a half on a Sunday and maybe another hour and a half during the week, that's not enough. Only children have to have their food prepared for them all the time. Part of growing up, part of being an adult is being able to prepare your own meals. And you see, we need to take responsibility for ourselves and we need to be working really seriously on our own Christian life so that we'll be able to contend for the faith. Because there's no way you're going to contend for the faith if you don't first remain in it yourself. And when it comes to remaining in the most holy faith, I'm telling you the buck stops with you to build yourself up with. Mind you, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned for others, which brings us to the third how-to. The one of rescue, verse twenty two. Be merciful to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now I'd be lying if I was saying if I said that everything about that verse was straightforward. Uh, it's a little tricky, but the main point's pretty clear. Contend for the faith by rescuing others to the faith that when we so sense the preciousness of the gospel, when we are so taken by the urgency and the seriousness of false teaching all around, that will, that will move us to be proactively working to help rescue and save other people. And Jude is telling us to do it very, very carefully. When you go out into the world to help save people from the world, you need to do it very, very carefully. In his words, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained with corrupted flesh. I think it's reflecting the care we need to exercise so that we ourselves will not be led away when we get alongside other people who don't know Jesus. Perhaps again it's touching down on the previous idea of putting in the hard yard so that we ourselves remain in the faith, so that we recognise when we might be drifting Uh, it's a bit like when you go on an aeroplane trip, you know, and the flight attendant, at the beginning they're running through all the the safety routines and they tell you that if you're there and you're looking after small children and uh, if an oxygen mask comes down, they always tell you to make sure that the mask is secured on yourself first before you turn to help your children. Now, that's not a selfish thing that they're telling you. It's a very wise thing because you're not going to be a help to anyone if you've already passed out. So snatching others from the fire, save them, show mercy, sure. But mercy mixed with fear. For as we mix with the world, we need to make sure that the world itself doesn't drag us under. All of which makes for pretty dramatic reading when you think about it, doesn't it? I mean, think about the lay of the land here. Here is a letter effectively written to every single one of us and it is calling us to arms. Hey, contend for the faith. Remember how precious it is. Remember that it is, it, un, it is under attack and needs protection. Remember to remain in the faith. Remember to rescue others from the faith. Build yourself up in the faith. Save others to the faith. And do it really carefully. So that there is no wedge that will take you away from the faith this is a really dramatic letter and yet it's beautiful the way he closes it because if I might steal a slogan from the government Jude wants us to be alert but not alarmed (laughs) verse 24 to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence with our fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Isn't it interesting that having just urged us in verse 21 to keep ourselves in God's love, he now finishes by reassuring us, that God himself will keep us. It's actually taking the letter full circle back to verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. See that? The letter opens and closes with this reassurance of being kept God. In a letter that's all about contending for the faith, in a letter that's full of urgings about, uh, about vigilance and care and effort, Jude opens and closes it by stressing our security in God's preserving love. That even though we live in the dangerous last days, hey, we're called, we're loved, we're kept. And you see, it's because of that sense of security that I reckon all the more we can swing ourselves into contending for the faith. I remember once watching some gymnasts training at an indoor stadium. And I don't think they were particularly elite gymnasts. Uh, they, weren't, uh, they certainly don't, didn't seem to be um, Olympic standard or Commonwealth standard. But I remember noticing how much confidence they had at what they were doing especially on that balance beam that I always just cringe at when I see people on that. And they were leaping and somersaulting and doing all these amazing moves because they were working with a safety harness on. You know, this belt and there's two huge elastic bands coming off them. It stopped them from actually really falling and hurting themselves. It almost looked like having a go at myself. And because of that security, they were just really throwing themselves into their routines. They were giving it their all. And I'm half wondering whether that's the image that Jude wants to leave us with in his letter. Because look, these are dangerous days. These are the last days. And scoffers and false teachers abound. And we need to keep our wits about us. And it's important to remember the warnings. And remain in the faith. And rescue others. But we've got a great safety harness. We are loved. We are called. We are kept. And so when Jude calls on us to contend for the faith, well, we can just give it our all. For God himself is able to keep you from falling. I'll pray.